You are listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, Please Be Ready, recorded on August 12, 2018. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. Well, hello, Harvest. I'm so glad to be here with you, and I'm glad if you're a first-time visitor at Harvest, whether it's right here where I'm standing in Catanning, Pennsylvania, in Freeport, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Pennsylvania, Petroleum Valley, Pennsylvania, the uh, jail, Pennsylvania, or way over in India. If you're a first-time guest, I'm just happy you're here. And uh, my name is Mike, and I would like to give some all-church announcements. I have two for you. Um, One, one in two weekends, two Sundays. No, yeah, not next Sunday, but the one after that, we're having our all-campus service where we're going to be outside in Catanning, down by the river. And the reason I'm saying that is if there's any of you who have received Christ as Savior, but have not been baptized as a believer. Like I was baptized as a baby, I didn't remember it. Then I came to know Christ and realized, now that this is my decision, I need to decide to follow Him in baptism. If that's you, it's not too late. That's why I'm telling you now, we have two weeks. So if you would, and you'd like to be baptized then, uh, um, Fill out your Connect card or find your campus pastor. Find some way to say, hey, what about me? I need to be baptized. If you have questions, we'll answer them then. The second one is I want to show you this flyer that has beautiful Beth Moore. She's been teaching the Bible for a long time. Every time I see her, she has different hair, different hairstyle. So, um, but she's still, you know, she's lovely uh, with different hair. And we are having a Beth Moore simulcast on September the uh, early September 15th and whoa almost went down this is important to me um, because I love it when our women get together and hear the Bible taught so if you are a woman and you have the XX chromosome you are invited to come here in containing all campuses please come here the cost is $20 but you get two meals and then you're going to have all day of great teaching. All day of great teaching. Um, you could go buy the book Your Best Life Now, but we don't recommend it. We say come to this and get your Beth life now. What, no laughter? Okay, not a, not a good joke, I know. Well, <laughs> let's get into the parables. The sermon for today, I'm really enjoying the parables this summer, teaching through them. It is amazing how uh, much stuff Jesus deals with in the parables. He starts so many of them with the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he tells a little bitty story, and it's huge. It's huge. He talks about the salvation of the whole world, heaven and hell, big subjects, and today is no different. But before I start, I have to talk a little bit about marriage, specifically the Jewish wedding ceremony of the first century, which would be Jesus' day. And, and what they would do in this Jewish ceremony was they would begin the wedding uh, at the wife's house, at the bride's house. And, and the man would go to the bride's house to get the bride. But he wouldn't just grab her and run. He'd go in there and there'd be some, some kind of religious stuff they'd do. I don't know what religious stuff they did. I don't have the details. Uh, um, an expert on it may have the details. But there'd be a rabbi in there and they'd say prayers and they'd speak some words over them and, and whatnot. And then when that was complete, then the groom would take the bride and he would process 
to his house. Kind of like a little happy wedding parade. And they'd walk together to his house with, with the rest of the guests and other guests could come along. And when they got to the, the groom's house, then they would have the party or the banquet or what we would call the reception. And that's where they would really, you know, have a great time and sing and dance and hava nakila, hava nakila, hey! And uh, mazel tov and all that stuff that you do at, at Jewish weddings or something like that. But you see the progression. They start, he goes to get the bride and he takes her to his father's house. This is very much like what Jesus does with the world. Jesus comes from his father's house in heaven and he comes to earth and he takes on flesh and walks among us in order to get his bride. His bride, Jesus' bride, is the church. And the church is all the people who believed in Jesus from the beginning of time. If you believe in Jesus, you're actually a member of his church and a member, therefore, the Bible says, of his bride, his beloved. So he comes from his home down to earth And he gets his bride. And then, what's he do in the house? Just like in the Jewish ceremony, he does some religious stuff. What's he do? He teaches for three years. He does miracles. And then he goes to a cross and dies. Then you might say, how is going to a cross and dying considered the religious stuff? That's the most important religious stuff. Because when Jesus died on that cross, it was an act of worship. He was offering his body to God the Father in an act of worship on behalf of his bride. Now you may say, well, how could dying on a cross be an act of worship? Because through that cross, what Jesus was doing was paying the price that no sinner could pay for his own sins. You see, all the members of Jesus' church, all the people who would believe in him throughout time, all the people who had believed in him were sinners. And no sinner can pay the price God requires because God is holy. You cannot worship God with dirty hands. But Jesus is clean and holy. He is God, became man, and had no sin. So he paid the price that no sinner could pay in order to rescue his bride. The picture of the Bible is the story of God coming to earth to save his bride, to wash clean his bride, to rescue his bride, and ultimately, to take her home. Why did Jesus come to die for his bride? Love. And I hope none of us ever forget this part. If you're a Christian, I don't want you to forget that the motivation for God coming was love. Not anger. You know, not because you're pathetic. I can't stand this pathetic person, but I better save him because I'm God. That wasn't his attitude. It was love. He loves you. The Bible says in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. The act of dying on a cross was an act of love because there was no other way to save us. So he saves his bride through love. So he comes to the bride's house, does the religious stuff. Then what's he do? He takes her home. This is important that we capture this. So let's write this down in our notes on our map. Ready? Ready? Jesus fulfilled his religious duty by giving himself in worship to his father as an offering for the sins of his bride. His good, good husband, isn't he? So then, after doing that, after dying for her sins and rising from the dead, the next thing the groom needs to do is lead his bride back to his home or his father's 
house. And that's what Jesus is going to do when he comes back at the end of all things. He's going to take us to his father's house. And you might say, well, that's an interesting image. Is that really in the scripture? Yeah. John 14, listen. Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus said that on the night he died, I'm going to come again. The the return of Christ is a central Christian teaching. Any Christian or teacher who says they teach about Christ, but it does not It does not include the return of Christ to rescue us. That's an incomplete gospel. He says, I will come again and take you to myself. He came to the bride's house and rescued her. And then he comes and takes us back. And according to the Bible, after he returns, there's a banquet, like a wedding reception. Um, Revelation 19.9, right near the end of the Bible and at the end of all things, it says, and the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, there's a real sacredness to marriage. You, you, you ever watch the old TV shows and you watch how they, 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 they do the, the weddings on TV? Um, they always say, now we gather together to join these two in holy matrimony. And you don't know what any of those words mean, like holy matrimony, but if you stop and think about the meanings of the word. We're joining you in holy matrimony. That's actually very correct. All marriage is sacred to God. All human marriage is holy to God. It doesn't mean everyone who's married is holy. In fact, everyone who's married is imperfect. Because we're imperfect, sometimes marriages fall apart. But God takes marriage more seriously than any human contract, with a possible exception of when you come to Christ as Savior. But now we even see that that is part of marriage. You see, Jesus crossed the sky to rescue his bride. The image of salvation is one of marriage. That's why God treats all human marriage as holy and sacred and valuable. And so should we. The Bible connects his love for us, God's love for us in marriage. Well, let's keep this in mind as we go to the parable. It'll help the parable come alive. So we're in Matthew chapter 25, verse 1 to 13. If you open your Bible, smartphone, or whatever you open, your memory, to Matthew chapter 25, verse 1 to 13. Here's our parable. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and they went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish. Five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. 
Afterward, the other virgins came saying also, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you do not know. For you know. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So what do we see here in this parable? Um, we have ten virgins who are... Uh, they're, they're somehow interrupting, or, or not interrupting, but they're joining in this wedding ceremony, this Jewish ceremony. The, the groom has gone to the bride's house, and, and he's done doing the religious stuff you're supposed to do. And then he's going to go back to his house. And apparently, these ten virgins are to catch up on the journey and um, light the way. There was no, uh, if it was dark, there was no light then. They didn't have electricity, so they would have lamps, just little handheld lamps with oil in them, and, and, and what a beautiful picture, these 10 l- young single ladies uh, lighting up the night and leading the groom and the bride uh, in procession into the party, and everyone has a, has a great time. Um, but 10, ten were were to, to be there, but only five did the job because five were not ready when they needed to be ready. Um, I, think, I think the whole world can be separated into two kinds of people, right? There are the kinds that are almost always on time for things, and then there are the kind who are almost never on time for things. In the room that's listening to this voice right now, there is no question that there are some people who are almost always on time and some who are almost always late. In fact, if you came with another person and you're sitting with that person and you know them at least a little bit, you can probably tell what the person sitting next to you is. A person who's normally on time or normally not on time. And I, can, I am a normally on time guy. And I can testify that other people like me are really annoyed by the other kind of people who are not on time. But there's a lesson I've learned. And that is, if you're the kind of person who's normally on time, and you marry the kind of person who's normally not on time, and then you have daughters on top of that, most likely you're going to become the kind of person who's normally not on time also. <laughs> um, because you can either be on time or you can be happy. Which do you want? I'd rather be happy. And so now I am no longer a person who was on time. Although now we have an empty nest, maybe I'll be more on time than I used to be. I don't mean to throw my daughters under the bus. But here comes the bus. There are my daughters. What the heck? <laughs> you know what I mean? So it could be a thing could be happening, say, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Four o'clock. Honey, we have to be there by four. I know, Dad. I know, Dad. <laughs> okay, okay. It's, it's three now. Okay. Just letting you know. It only takes 10 minutes to get there, Dad. Got it, got it. Well, you got to get ready. I know, Dad. 3.30 comes. 3.30, honey. I know, Dad. I got plenty of time. <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> we should be leaving soon. It only takes 10 minutes. But... <laughs> You got to, it takes time to walk out to the car, drive to the place, you get out of the car, you walk in the place, you have to find a seat. <gasps> okay, it's quarter to four. <laughs> All right, it's quarter to four, honey. I know! They're blow drying their hair. 
<laughs> They're eating a bowl of cereal. <laughs> I'll just pour this bowl and take it with me. So you finally get out of the house about five minutes to four. And eventually, <laughs> you get to the place. And then, uh, then you walk in and you're late. <laughs> and then, for you, I got to go to the bathroom. Oh, my goodness, you know. And then I tell myself, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to embarrass my loved ones. I'll just save it up till they leave home and use it as a sermon illustration. <laughs> um, anyway, so there's a, I think that the five foolish virgins were the kind of people who were normally late. They, um, the, the, the five ones who were wise, they're normally on time. See, on time people plan ahead. They think, what if there's a delay? Well, there won't be a delay, right? <laughs> what if there's road construction? What if something comes up? I need to be ready. And so the, the five say, well, we're going to get ready. We're getting ready for the wedding. And they get their little lamps. And they think, what if the lamp runs out of oil? We'll bring some extra. And they're ready to go. They tell their, their friends or sisters, hey, girls, we got to go. We'll be there. We got plenty of time. And they wait till the last minute. And they say, oh, we got to go. And they look out at the sundial and they say, oh, my gosh, look what time it is. They grab their lamps and they run, run, and they're there. (laughs) We made it on time. And the other five say, good, I'm glad you made it. Where's the bridegroom? Well, he'll be here. He'll be here. And it gets dark. They light their lamps. Where's the bridegroom? He's he's coming. (laughs) He's delayed. You didn't count on a delay, did you? No. Well, he is delayed. And um, so five of them, when, you know, when, when, when they hear the call, the bridegroom's coming. Five of them say, well, let's go. The other five say, our lamps are going out. Give us some of your oil. These five, they're used to being late. They're not going to put up with this. And no, go to, the, go to the store and buy some more oil, then come join us. And so as the story goes, five of them are ready, and they go into the banquet, and five don't get to go to the banquet. Stinks to be them. That's the parable. So what are we to make of this parable? Several of the parables that we've had this summer, Jesus actually tells us what everything in the parable means. Right? He says in the one, well, this seed is the word of God. Uh, the, 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 the seed that falls on rocky soil is this kind of person. And he interprets all the positions for it. In this one, he does not. He does not tell us, well, these five virgin, virgins represent uh, Old Testament Israel or something, and these Pharisees, and this. No, he doesn't tell us any of that. And it's dangerous when we're interpreting parables if we feel the need to assign a meaning to every little bit. Because the Bible interprets itself. If the Bible doesn't tell you who who everything and everyone represents, then you don't know. So what do we do with a parable when Jesus um, doesn't tell us what everything is? Um, What we do is this, and this is going to be in your notes. Ready? It is best when interpreting parables to look for one main point. If Jesus doesn't tell you everything that it means, look for one main point. Often Jesus will tell you that. Often it just jumps out. And perhaps look for a supporting point or two. All right? That's the rule. 
I've heard some strange teaching from teachers who tell you everything that is represented in, in say, the Good Samaritan. Oh, they know what every little bit is. But the Bible doesn't say what every little bit is. So what you're looking for is the main point. Okay? Now, when looking for the main point of something, and you're not sure what everything is, always start with the obvious. What is obvious? Well, I'm going to tell you something that's obvious about this one. This concerns the return of Christ. At this point, you might say, wait, how did you know that if it's obvious? The way I know it's obvious is where it falls in Matthew chapter 25. Because in Matthew chapter 24, the apostles say, Jesus, tell us about the time of your coming. And then he begins to tell them of the time of the end, of the tribulation period. He's really telling them of his second coming. And you can read that for yourself and see that that's what he's talking about. And then he gives several parables that follow. So the context tells us that this is about the return of Christ. It also tells us that Jesus' parable is speaking about suddenness. The, the, the groom doesn't come when you think he's going to come. But when he does come, some aren't ready. Boom! Suddenness. Right? And that has played itself out over history. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again. He, he, he said, I come in a twinkling of an eye. Right? When, when is he going to get here? Soon. A day and hour you do not know. When? The apostles thought he would come in their lifetime. When it looked like he wasn't, they started writing more. And we get the New Testament out of that. He, you know, Peter said, hey, some of you people are wondering, where's Jesus? And he says, he's not slow, as some count slowness. To the, to the Lord, a year is a, is a, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. He, he's, he's waiting for folks to get saved. The first generation of believers, Jesus, they thought Jesus was coming in their lifetime. And he didn't come. They're like the virgins waiting they got the oil lamp ready. They're waiting for Jesus, who's already visited the bride's house, to take the bride to the Father's house. But he doesn't show up. And every generation since then has thought Jesus was coming. 2,000 years later, the wise are still ready. I once uh, attended a, a worship service in South Carolina. It was at a prison, um, a minimum or somewhere below maximum security prison. And the whole prison service was done by, by the inmates, right? And, and me and a couple of my buddies from seminary, we were there to either offer a prayer. One of my buddies actually did the sermon. And I can remember not only his name, but the three points of the sermon. That's effective points. His name was Ted Singh. And he said, sin binds, sin blinds, and sin grinds. And boy, he was good. You know, sin grinds you down. It blinds your eyes and it binds you. It has nothing to do with this sermon. But <laughs> I still remember it. So he was preaching away. And, and there they had a choir that sang, all inmates. It was wonderful. And afterwards, I was looking at the bulletin. And the bulletin said on it, it said, Jesus is coming soon. Please be ready. So I asked the inmate who, put to, who organized things for him. I said, why is that on there? He says, I put that on every week. I was like, why do you put it on every week? He says, just because you're in prison, it's not an excuse to be caught off guard. I mean, that's not an exact quote, but it was like that. that he said, <laughs> he wanted to make sure guys in prison understood, you got to be ready. You can be locked up, but you got to be ready for Christ. Well, that really hit me hard. 
You know, it reminded me of something I had once thought of a lot, right? Um, when I was uh, a new Christian, I was always excited about the second coming. I don't know why. It was the 80s. I was a young adult, and, and, uh, and, I, and I, was, I remember talking to a pastor friend of mine, and I said, hey, how come people don't talk about the second coming all the time? And he says, you think Jesus is going to come soon? Yeah. And he said, well, you're in good company because the Apostle Paul did too. And so he kind of encouraged me, but he, he kind of was indicating it's not that new to think he's coming soon. And so I started to wonder, when, when, when's he coming? I don't know. Perhaps that's a lost part of the gospel. Perhaps we forget that Jesus is going to interrupt our world. Larry Norman in a song said, um, some folks say the good Lord's dead, that he doesn't exist. It's inside your head. Well, I wonder how many are going to be surprised when they look straight up and see him coming in the skies. Brothers and sisters, the main point of this parable is you're wise if you're ready at all times. How do I know this? Because Jesus said, what was the last line? Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Jesus himself said with his own mouth, I can come at any time, so you better be ready. And if he said that to Jews in the first century, Jewish believers, how much more true is it today? There are a lot of Christians who seem to want to act as if he's not coming back. They'll say, I'll say, Jesus could come back, and they'll say, well, not yet, because as I've mapped out future prophecies, I know that these certain events have to happen first. I'm like, shut up. I don't care what you say. Jesus said, be ready at any moment, because you don't know when. There needs to be an urgency in the life of a Christian that all of a sudden, all the world could come to a sudden halt. Because God steps on the stage and says, play's over. Jesus asks us to remain in a state of readiness. How about you? If he comes back today, are you ready? Jesus says, be ready. Now, that ends our parable. That's the point of the parable. But it leaves us with a practical question, a practical difficulty. How? You say, be ready, Jesus. Well, I, I want to be ready. Exactly how do I do that? Well, in this situation, I'm going to give you four instructions for being ready for the return of Jesus. But these, that's three, four. I've been counting my whole life. Four instructions. Okay, four instructions. But none of them are coming from me. Every single one of these four, I will show you, come from Jesus, and in context, speaking of the end when he returns. All right? Number one, fear. And here I don't mean the kind of fear that's bad. I mean fear God if you have not come to Christ. Fear because you sin. Fear and repent of sin. A lot of fear is bad, but some is good. If you fear God's anger at sin, that's smart. You may say, well, I, I, I don't. Isn't the New Testament God supposed to be nice? The same God is in the New Testament and the Old Testament. 
He's not only nice, he's loving. His love is everlasting. He died for your sins. But if you will not come to him because you love your sin, then he's also angry and someone you should be afraid of falling into his hands. I I was listening to a podcast, uh, Al Mohler's podcast, and he was saying how Andy Stanley was preaching a sermon saying, we've got to get rid of the Old Testament because modern people are too sophisticated for those scary stories. They need a nice God. I don't know if Andy Stanley's been smoking crack or something because it's the same God, Old Testament and New Testament. And I don't care how sophisticated people come. I'm not ashamed of this simple gospel that Jesus Christ had to die because I'm a sinner in order to save me because God punishes sin. You need to be afraid of the holiness of God if you have not come to Christ because he paid a debt you cannot pay and you do not want to try. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 24. This is talking about his return. He says this. Concerning that day and the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. Now some of you might say, how can the Son of God not know when he's returning? Because he's God. Okay, I'm going to give you the answer, but I'm not going to explain it. Why? It'll be the right answer, but it's hard to understand. It's above my pay grade to make myself understand or you, but it's in the Bible, so I'll tell you. Here's the answer. Jesus has two natures. No other human can say this. He's divine, he's God forever, but he took on a body and he's flesh. In his fleshly body, he's limited. His human nature's limited. He had to learn to walk, he had to learn to talk, he had to learn things he does. And so in, his, in that sense, he does not know, but in his divinity, he of course knows when he's coming back. Now let's move on. You might be saying, wait, I want more. I said, no. You <laughs> look it up in a theology book or we'll talk later. The point here is, he says, for the days... For those were the days as of Noah, for as were the days of Noah, so will the coming be the coming of the Son of Man. What does that mean? It means, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. That means they were going on with life as normal. They were were going on Instagram and Facebook. They were going to Walmart. They were buying dresses to get married. They were having their fun. They were partying. They were were watching the football game with with their uh, dips and whatnot. They were just having fun, like life, until the day Noah entered the ark. And boom, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. This is about the sorting out of humanity. You people don't have a boat. You don't even have a raft. You should have listened to Noah. Bam! The wicked are washed away and the redeemed are saved. That's what the Son of Man coming is going to be like. You can shout to the world, He's coming again! But even the people shouting it don't know when the rain's going to fall. They don't know exactly when he's coming. The point here is that the times of Noah, the sinful were taken away. You do not want Jesus to return if your soul is not ready. If you have not turned from sin and received Christ as Savior, be afraid. Why? Because this is like zombie stuff. Look, two men will be walking in the field, one taken, one left. Some wrongly believe that this refers to the rapture. It does not. Two are walking happily and peacefully in the field, and one God grabs and throws into the punishment, the outer darkness, the fire. Therefore, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. Christians say to me, oh, you think he's coming, but he ain't coming yet. Do you expect him this hour? No. (laughs) He comes at an hour when you don't expect. Look, 
Every Christian struggles with sin from time to time. It's, it, we fight against sin. That's what we do as Christians, but it's a fight. And, uh, but those who live a life of purposeful, deliberate, ignoring God and what he says about sin, that's what he's talking about here. You, you hear the message and you're like, I'm going to keep doing what I do. You're in danger. For you may not even be saved. You may not, or you could be saved, but in some sort of precarious position you don't want to be in, but you may not even be saved. You just think, ah, well, I'll sleep with who I want to sleep. I'll live with who I want to live. I'll spend all the money on myself as much as I want to. I'll drink what I want to drink. I'll lie when I want to lie. I'll do what I want to do. I'll fight when I want to fight. And he's going to come on you like a surprise. Like 9-11, for those of you old enough to remember. It was just a nice day in September. And then boom, a terrorist attack. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, Hebrews 10, 26, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What does this mean? It means if you're hearing the gospel, you're hearing me now, but you just say, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do then how are you going to have your sins forgiven? There's no other way except Christ. I know there's young men among us who fight with sin of lust all the time and and they, oh, maybe I'm not saved. I'm not talking about that. You're going to have to fight with lust. I'm talking about people who sin as if it doesn't matter. As if there isn't a holy God. Step one of being ready for the second coming is believing in Jesus. If you've been putting it off, stop. Put your faith in Christ. Second way to be ready for His coming is watch. Watch for it. Look for it. Be on guard for it. Why? Because you're here to work. You won't know the day and the hour, but God wants every generation to be watching because when the season of the end comes... He's going to somehow let you know you have to be on the watch because people on the watch for his return are working. We're not supposed to be people who, if it is the end times, we're hiding out, holding our heads. We're not digging deeper basement bunkers and covering them with steel and filling them with beans and dried bacon, (laughs) putting signs up, locking ourselves in and putting signs outside that say, don't take the mark, and waiting for the second coming. No, we're supposed to be saving souls, shining brighter. Some might think, well, I don't want to be in the Christians in the last generation living when the Lord returns. What, are you crazy? Yes, you do. But I'm afraid of the tribulation. Don't be afraid of anything except God. (laughs) Don't be afraid of anything. If you're alive in the end times, it's because you're going to shine like the sun. Listen to what it says in Daniel 12 about the very end. It says, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. That's us. That's you. And those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. I want to be those people. There will be a generation of Christians who are at the end. Yeah, there have been many generations of Christians thinking they were at the end and they weren't. But one generation will be there. And it could be you, and it could be me, and I want to be watching. Look what, look what Jesus says about watching. From the fig tree, this is Matthew 24, same context. From the fig tree, learn its lessons. As soon as its 
branch becomes tender, it puts out its leaves, and you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near. Oh, what things? Well, go back and read Matthew 24. I'm not going to read it for you today. I don't have time. Go read it yourself. He will tell you the signs of the end. Those signs have always been there, and people have wondered, I wonder if it's now. Listen, what Jesus seems to be implying here is that when the end time comes, those people who are really at the end will look at these things that have been written for centuries, and it's as if they'll see them for the first time and know, aha, I really am at the end. But he wants all Christians, even the ones who died long ago, to have a posture of alertness because that will make you a better worker for Christ. He says, you'll see these things and you'll know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. There will be a generation who they'll see those signs and go, it's in my lifetime. And it could be you, but you're to be on the watch. Third, pray. He says pray. Pray. Why? Pray to avoid the world. The world's spirit is going to have deception poured out on it. So bad that, it, that Paul writes that the deception is so bad at the end times that it will deceive the whole world except the elect, except those chosen by God, except you and me, hopefully. And Jesus says, therefore, pray that you don't get sucked into sin. Pray that you don't fall asleep, get lulled to sleep. You ever see that movie Jungle Book? And you got Mowgli. If you haven't, go watch it sometime. And uh, he's looking at the snake. He's talking to the snake, Ka. And Ka starts to sing. And his, his eyes go like this. And, and Mowgli, don't look at his eyes. He looks at his eyes. And, and Mowgli's like, talk to me. Or whatever he says. And the snake's going to eat him. Well, that's what this world can do to you. You can be looking at this problem and that problem and this person yelling and that person yelling and people criticizing and all this stuff and you're lulled to sleep by all the arguments. Jesus says, no, 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 pray. Watch, watch. He says, talking about the end times, Luke 21, he says, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation, with drunkenness, with the worries of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Don't let that day sneak up on you. For it'll come on all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times. Praying that you may have the strength to escape all those things that are going to take place. And to stand before the Son of Man. If we are living in the last days, I want to be standing. That doesn't mean living. Because who knows if you live to the end. I may be martyred. But I want to be standing. I want to be standing on the faith of Christ. I do not want to be sucked in to the sin and the ways of the world. So what do I do? Pray. Pray. That's what he says do. Pray. I didn't make that up. You know, a beautiful thing is the Lord's Prayer. You know that prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. If you pray that, you're praying for his return on earth as as it is in heaven give us this day our what our daily bread that's how you know it's a daily prayer lead us not into temptation deliver us from evil well that prayer 
is good at all ages. It glows before the second coming. It glows. Oh, Lord, preserve us. And finally, work. 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 Jesus wants us to work if they were in the end times. To work in order to be ready. Now, by work, I don't mean work to make money, although you should work to make money. And let me say, the politically incorrect but still true, if I'm talking to an XY chromosome, a man... A young man, a man of any age, if you should work to make money, you should work to make enough to pay for yourself so other people do not have to pay for you and have enough left over to be generous. And if you have others responsible for you, work enough to be responsible to care for them. I'm not saying anything about women here. Women may work. They don't have to work in the the same way to make money. Often they have babies. They want to take care of them. But they can work. There's nothing against it, but I'm saying, man, it's your primary responsibility to work hard, make money, pay for yourself, and then others you're responsible for. But that's not what I'm talking about here. This isn't that kind of work. There's another kind of work. There's work that advances the kingdom of God. At Harvest, we say we're here to increase the health and size of God's church everywhere. That is not the mandate for the pastors. That is the mandate for every man, woman, boy, and girl who calls Harvest home. We are calling you to be a disciple of Christ and disciples of Christ work to build his church by building healthy Christian lives that do good deeds and share the gospel. And then they pour into healthy Christian households that are known for their love and forgiveness. And they pour out into their society and into their church health by following Christ and working for Christ. Look, you're working at something. You may be working at hobbies. You may be working at jobs. You may be working to build this and working to do that but of everything you're working at most of it comes to nothing the only value is it builds your character the only thing you work at that lasts is what you do for Christ and if you're going to be caught ready you're going to be caught working for Christ that's not just for pastors and all those really spiritual folks who serve as a, you know the leaders in the church or something it's for every one of us Every one of us is to be walking with God, loving one another, seeking the lost. We all have our part to play. And and that's all I want for you. I want you to be caught working when he comes back. Listen to what Matthew 24 says. Again, same context in the second coming. Jesus says, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. The work you do for Christ on this earth, when he returns, he will reward disproportionately, way more than we deserve. What you do here for him matters. What you do to build everything else on the earth comes to nothing. I don't care if you win the Super Bowl. But what you do for Christ lasts forever. And you are to be caught working when he returns. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. Jesus ain't coming back. You have time. And begins to beat his fellow servant and eats and drinks with the drunkards. Let's party, man. Let's just drink and hang out and party. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect In an hour, he does not know. And he'll cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. 
what does cut them in pieces and put them with the hypocrites mean except send you to hell? If that's you or me, don't be that person. In that place, there'll be weeping of gnashing of teeth. Are you ready for his return? Are you ready for him to come back? You know, this is a very practical sermon. And I don't even have to give you the application because I, I don't know what it would take for you to be ready. But you do. You can answer the question. If, he's, if he were to come in an hour, are you ready? I mean, yes, we have to worry about present concerns. We have to plan to pay the mortgage next month. But are, is your soul ready? Have you repented of sin? Do you believe in Christ? Or if he comes back, are you in trouble? Are you ready, Christian? Or are you letting the ways of the world get you? Christians will put up with some sin. I'm sometimes shocked by Christians who live with one another, sleep with one another when they're not married, are greedy all the time and don't care, gossip and don't care, and they think those sins don't even matter because I receive Christ. You're either a Christian who's in trouble or you're not even a Christian. Are you ready for the second coming, Christian? Is the world sucking you in? Are you neglecting, watching, praying, being ready, being expectant? We should expect. Well, C.S. Lewis said, since we don't know at what time he returns, we should be ready at any time. Well, he stole that from the Bible, and he's exactly right. You know, when I was a new Christian in 1983, I heard this music of uh, a guy named Keith Green. Somebody gave me the cassette tapes of Keith Green. You know, they copied the cassette tapes, and they wrote... Now, I know to a whole generation of people here, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Because that tape, it's like a plastic square with two little circles. It's like music, right? <laughs> like you download music, it's kind of like that. But if you take scotch tape and you were to write the songs of the music, wrap it up, squish it out and listen to it. It's kind of like that. I mean, not exactly, but it's kind of like that. Anyway, I had these tapes of Keith Green. And to this day, I'd say, it's his music that I think is more Holy Spirit driven into my life than any music I've ever heard. And I'd encourage you to find it. He's on Spotify now. And uh, you don't, don't worry about the sound of the music or how many instruments. Just listen to the words and let him sing to you. It's like the Spirit of God was touching me. And, and then I said, who is this guy? And he wrote all these pamphlets that, that, that you could buy, and I'd buy them, and, 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 and they just cut me to the bone. They helped me so much. And, and I heard he did a lot of good deeds. He had a place in Texas and a big ministry going. And I said, where's this guy? I got to see him. And somebody said, well, he's dead. I said, what do you mean he's dead? He died in 1982. I got saved in 1983. I went, oh, my gosh. This is like before I was a Christian. All my favorite rock and rollers would die. Why is that? All my favorite musicians die. It's bad enough that Ronnie Van Zant and Stephen Gaines from Leonard Skinner had to die. And John Bonham, he had to die. Boy, that ruined everything. Heck, even in the Christian life? And I remember being upset when I found out Keith Green was dead. And I was talking to my pastor friend, George, and I said, look, this isn't good. You know, this guy got saved, and in the, he was only in his 30s. He died with two kids, his two little t- toddlers in a plane crash. And, and I said, man, he, he was doing so much. The Lord was using him. Revival was coming through him. How much more could the Lord have done with him if he hadn't died? And I really wasn't understanding it. And, and my friend just told me, don't worry about that. 
He died because his work was finished. It was finished. As a new Christian, I never forgot that. That if a man of God, or a woman of God, or a child of God, is working for the Lord, they're invincible until their work is finished. And I thought, that's what I want someone to say about me if I die. You see, because Jesus might come back and interrupt you, and you better be found working. You better not be found in the strip club. You better be not found lying and stealing and cheating and gossiping and being greedy, shopping your head off. You better be found working for him. But if he don't come back in your, in your or my lifetime, you're going to meet him when you die. And I want people to say about me what they said about Keith Green. He finished working. To work for him is to be ready. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Well, I hope so, because I want to be found ready. That's what Keith Green sung. Well, I hope the same is true. That's why, that's why, that's why I preach. I'm not doing it for myself, I'm doing it for you. I, I want to get to heaven and know more people were ready because God used me to help them. That's all I want is you to be ready, you to be rewarded, you to be standing, you not to fail. And I I know a lot of you are going to shine like the sun. You are. I wish I could say I was sure of all of you. I I don't know who, but I know a lot of you are going to shine like the sun. You're going to come back. He's going to come back. You're going to be ready. And it might be this generation. But today is the day for you to take inventory. Today's the day for you to determine that I'm going to be on watch. I'm going to be expecting him. Every morning I'm going to get up and say, maybe today. And I'm going to live a life like I'm expecting it. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.